to our text tonight is going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to be specifically looking at verses 1 um, through 10. Um, So I'll just go ahead and read the text, and then we'll get into it. So in verse 1 he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, for to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach. So if I touch, I just realized as I was reading this, I've touched my nose a little bit tonight. My allergies are pretty bad. And I've had several nosebleeds today. So if it happens tonight, don't be um, worried. I've got some tissue already up here, and I'll just pinch my nose and keep going. It'll be okay. All right? So First uh, Timothy chapter 4, we start off with um, Paul's writing to Timothy. And so I'm going to pull, you know, I really did just say that as a joke, and I really did just start make my nosebleed. So I really am going to pinch and keep talking. Uh, so verse 1, is this okay? They're okay with this? Okay. So verse 1, it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. So Paul's teaching to Timothy and just really um, expressing, looking back, he's expressing in where it says expressly says. All right, I found it. He's referring to Acts 20, 29 through 30, where Paul states that after he leaves them, um, if we, Paul is, it's Luke, or it's Acts, so we know that Luke is writing it. But in Acts 20, 29 through 30, Paul's talking about after he leaves them, but obviously ever since when Jesus, we know that he started, that he said when he leaves, that there would be false prophecy to come along. So in 29, it says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Um, So we can see very clearly in this verse is where he's talking about when he says the Spirit expressly says. So that's where he's coming from when he says that. But he goes on to say that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Okay, so Paul's talking about false prophecy, obviously, coming all along. But it's most important that what I like to look at is the way that the Scripture is always depicted from Jesus all the way through Paul, through everyone who writes in the New Testament, that false prophecy is not a light subject. He speaks in Acts 20 and he calls them wolves, savage wolves that will come along to destroy the pack. And when Jesus talks about it, he uses the same kind of language. He calls the um, Pharisees, you brood of vipers. It's never a light subject. So it's no surprise here where he calls them deceiving spirits, doctrines of demons, lies and hypocrisy, seared their conscience searing with a hot iron. He even goes down to call them old wives' fables. Um, it's not very surprising that he would continue to talk like this about false prophecy. And so it's very easy to um, derive, if I didn't say already, we're talking about godliness tonight. And 
three key aspects. And so the first aspect that I'm deriving in it and from it is the importance of good and true doctrine and to understand what the Scripture teaches. We very clearly see right here that Paul is very upset with false prophecy, and rightfully so. And so we can naturally just derive from that that true and good doctrine is very, very important. So as an aspect of godliness, we know that that would be um, what God's called us to is good and true doctrine. So, not, but what I wanted to talk about is not just for me. I'm going to seminary. Most of you know, you probably saw me on Sin Sunday. They put me up here and I'm going to seminary. So it would be natural that I would be excited and interested in doctrine and theology and that, things of that sort. But Paul, isn't, he might be writing to Timothy, but he's not just expressly talking about the people that are going to speak or the people that are serving in paid positions in the church or high positions in the church. He's talking about for the believer. He's talking about from when you were a believer on, the importance of understanding the truth of the Scripture. And that it means, and what it means to um, everyone. So it obviously, from the beginning to the end, it sets up everything we know about Christ, from salvation to baptism to anything that you need to know about Christ, how we pray, how we, what we know about Him, His character, everything. It sets up our entire foundation for what we believe and what we know about Him. And if we, as people who sit in the pews or just aren't speaking in the front of the church, not that you're lesser, because especially as Baptists, we believe in the priesthood of all believers, so we definitely believe that you're not lesser and so that you're capable. But it's also so important for us and you specifically to find that truth in the doctrine. It's up to you as well. It's not just up to me. It's not just up to Dr. Reggie or John or anyone that's speaking to teach you the truth of the Scripture, but it's also up to yourself. It matters so much to every believer because if you have a a conveyed view of Christ, if your view of Christ is wrong, then it can affect your entire understanding of Christianity, of Jesus and what He did, of heaven and hell, of just very foundational things. So... Good doctrine and in true doctrine is, imped- is so important to a believer of any kind. So false prophecy is not to be treated easily, but what I wanted to talk about is how do we know true doctrine? So how do we know it? And so one of the ways that we know it is obviously through personal study. Um, you hear people talk about it all the time, that you need to be reading your Bible, daily studying the Scriptures. And one of the main reasons that they're talking about that and they express that is because it's not the preacher's sole responsibility to teach you everything there is in Scripture. It's just not possible. If you came to church every Sunday for your whole life and you only heard what the pastor preached on Sundays, you would still miss out on so much Scripture and so much understanding. It's not possible to cover it all. So that's one of the main reasons that they're saying that is so that when you go home that you're reading and studying the Scripture and be making your relationship personal. John speaks about it all the time, especially this morning too in the gathering. He said it's a personal relationship with Christ. If you're not studying the Scripture and studying who Jesus is, then you can't. your personal relationship with Jesus just doesn't exist flat out. Um, so through personal study, it talks about in the Scripture that we can't just take the pastor's word for granted. I'm not saying anything about anyone that speaks here as I would never question Dr. Reggie that he would say anything that would be against the scripture but it does say in the scripture that we are to go home and to study for ourselves and to check and make sure that what he's teaching lines up with scripture because the Bible doesn't say that Dr. Reggie knows more than we do it doesn't say that he may have gone to seminary and learned more than we did in school but it says that we are to hold in check too I think about a lot of times 
what the extreme case could happen if you don't, if you're not checking to make sure that what they're teaching is okay. I think about the, a lot of the preachers that you see on television that many people talk poorly of because they congregation has not kept in check about what the scripture says. And so he or she, whoever it may be that's preaching, has gone so far astray of from the gospel, but they're still blindly listening to him and accepting and saying, yep, he must know what he's talking about because he is up here preaching and he wouldn't just be there for no reason. So it's so important for us to go home as well. I think about also another way that we would know the um, scripture through asking questions. Um, when I first came to school, and as many people expect, especially in youth and coming to college, most people find that when you get to college that it's really a time of growth for you as a believer. You're not in your uh, living with your parents anymore for the most part. You are separated on your own. You have to find your own church to go to. That's a big step. And you also have to start understanding the scripture and everything you've been taught your whole life. And it has to become personal to you. Um, and so when I've, I think back a couple years ago when it really started to rock in is that I started asking questions about anything. I asked questions from why do we go to church every week? Why does the church look like it does? Why do we baptize after salvation? Why do we do anything? How are we saved? Everything. I started asking questions about the simplest and most foundational things because I genuinely wanted to know what the scripture was teaching, what it meant. And it was becoming personal to me. Um, and so that is one of the key ways that I learned um, how to know true doctrine. And you can as well. Um, I was younger when it happened to me, but I mean... It happens to people all the time. You should still be asking questions, even if people much older than I should be asking questions to understand the scripture because you're obviously never going to come to a full understanding of everything that Jesus taught. Um, so asking questions is a key way to know good doctrine. Um, your pastor, I already said that. And, but one of the best things that I ever found when I was studying the scripture and really trying to learn about who Jesus was and making my faith was becoming my own and I was hunger and thirsting for the scripture was my feelings, I felt a lot of the times, got in the way. And so this idea of conscience that he talks about in the scripture, he says in uh, verse 2, he says, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Now, I'm not saying that I was taught very wrong things when I was growing up, but a lot of times my conscience, I felt like, was hindering me in my study um, because I had preconceived notions and I tried to make them fit in the scriptures. Um, so I always found it was easiest for me to separate my um, ideas of my feelings or conscience away and just let the scripture speak totally for itself because I felt that I was forcing it and making it into something that maybe it wasn't. And so letting it speak true to what it was and knowing that the gospel being perfect and formed by God, that it would teach me everything that I needed to be taught, um, that I didn't have to rely on things that I've been taught before. So my first key aspect of godliness tonight was importance of doctrine or theology or scripture um, of that sort, the importance of knowing what is taught in the scripture about Jesus and us. Um, my second key aspect is going to be self-limitation. Um, in verse 3 through 5, we pick up and he says, forbidding, um, he's still talking about false prophecy, but he says, forgetting, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is to be if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Um, so he's still listing false teaching, but he goes into um, the, we, we know as people who have lived after Jesus Christ, that Jesus taught in the New Testament that it was okay to eat 
basically anything. As long as it was received with thanksgiving and with prayer. I mean, in the Old Testament, we know that Israel was originally, they were not allowed to eat certain things. They had very um, strict diets and other things. As God was actually saving them or keeping them safe from things that they could have gotten from eating um, shellfish and things like that. Um, so in the New Testament, we know that Jesus said that it is okay now to eat. It's okay to eat anything. Um, and so he talks about that it might, uh, false prophecy, they might be able to say that we shouldn't eat something. But we know that it is okay. Um, and in 1 Corinthians 8, 8 through 13, um, Paul's still talking about the same topic, still talking about eating and that everything has been made clean. But he has a different spin on it, and it's really where I wanted to focus on for this idea of self-limitation. And in verse 8, he says, But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weaker brother perish for whom Christ died. But when thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. Um, so this idea, first let's look at what he means. So it would be weird to, in this time, Paul's living after Jesus said it's okay to eat anything. It would be weird for Paul to say that by eating meat, it would cause someone to stumble. It'd be a weird thing for him to say, knowing that Jesus said it was okay to eat it, and any believer would most likely know that. Um, but if, but what Paul's talking about is meat that's specifically been offered to idols. Um, but God also made this okay for them to eat, as we know. Um, it said that idols, if they're Bible-believing Christians, if they follow Christ, then we know that there's one God, and the idols aren't really real. They're just man-made and man-worshipped. It's really nothing they're worshiping. So for them to have eaten food that had been offered to it, it's really offered to nothing, so really the food's not tainted, so it's okay for them to eat. But if you have a new believer that walks by this idol or this wherever they are, and they see you eating meat that they know that's typically eaten um, by the people who worship this idol, it could easily lead that brother astray into maybe where he views God as the only God, maybe he views him as he just works in the realm with other idols, that there's other gods. And so you see how it can easily ensnare a new believer, and he says to the point where it would, the weaker brother would perish, or in this case, not inherit eternal life. So Paul, obviously it's Paul, because he makes this drastic, extreme um, statement that really just makes everybody in the building uncomfortable. And he says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again lest I make my brother stumble. So here he goes, and he says that I won't do it at all if it's going to cause my brother to stumble. And the attitude behind it is, I mean, it, it just wrecks us because it's hard to imagine something that God said is okay to do, and then we're having to take it away because we're messing with somebody else's faith. Um, and so, obviously today, eating meat is not one of those things. We're not off, it's, not, it's very rare that you're going to find food that was offered to an idol that would cause a brother to stumble. But I thought of a couple things that work together and go with this exact point um, that would take the place of food in our day. And so my first point would, or the first one would be, um, I thought about music is a big thing today in our culture, especially um, for younger and older. There's a lot of music, and we know that most of it really doesn't, we like to claim it as not harmful, um, 
but not God glorifying at the same time. So if it's not God glorifying, then it's really not, I mean, if you want to draw the line, it's not God glorifying, then it's not, then it's obviously praising the things that he's not about. And so I thought about a new believer um, coming to Christ and realizing that everything is about God and that we should be doing everything daily to pour ourselves, to build ourselves up, not to put um, things that don't praise God in our minds. And so I thought about listening to me being a more mature believer, listening to uh, music that wouldn't necessarily praise God, maybe would praise um, everything that God's against. And I think, thought about maybe a new believer seeing me and hearing that, and hearing and seeing me and saying, well, I know who he is, and I saw him preach a temple on Sunday night, so it must be okay to do this. And then it quickly ensnare him into this belief of listening to things that really just constantly are tearing him down. He's never being built up, and he's really... It's an extreme case. I realize what I'm making, but that he could be ensnared to go on. And so I think about guarding, like, ourselves, everything that we do. We're constantly, being, as Christians, being constantly watched, constantly watched. And the Lord has given us many freedoms to do things. Um, but I, we have to be so careful to sell... I call it self-limitation. We have to sell, limit ourselves so that we are not leading others astray. The things that we do, while we might get away with it, we may understand that it's not maybe totally correct, but um, we're going to maybe do it anyway. And we cause our brother to stumble. And so the statement that he makes actually is very powerful because we have to care about more than ourselves. We have to deny ourselves maybe a luxury that we feel like we can enti- we can and take in, but we can partake in but it can harm someone else. It can lead someone else astray. So we have to limit ourselves even more in that. It feels unfair, but as we know that Christ has called us to be burdened for the loss, for the new believer, because it's not just about us. It's about him. It's about the people that we're bringing on. He called us to make disciples, and one of the ways that we make disciples is they watch us, and they see how a mature believer acts. So it would be very important for us to act in a way that would not do it. So the list goes on and on. There's multiple examples. There's just the only one that I wanted to point out tonight. I said, but the point is, I will not cause my brother to stumble. Um, so limiting yourself so that your brother would not stumble, or your brother would not fall away, because, I mean, ultimately we don't want that as well. Um, and so lastly, as we look at verse 10, um, my last aspect or, yeah, of godliness is going to be suffering. Um, in verse 10, it says, For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Um, so before I talk about labor and trust, I want to look at, um, it happened to be in the text that I chose, but it says, We trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Um, so real quick, I just wanted to talk about that for a second. When it says that He's going to be the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe, um, it doesn't mean that he's the savior of. It doesn't mean he's saving everyone. You think about like people. Have you ever heard someone said that everyone's going to heaven? That's not what it means. He's not saying everyone's going to heaven and he saved especially those who believe. And actually, the Greek word that they used um, can actually also be translated as particularly. Um, so yes, we know God to be the savior of everyone. He can save anyone and everyone, but we know that he's only going to save those who believe. So that's what it means by it says, especially there. It's not um, for something else. Um, So verse 10, what I mainly want to focus on is this end, we both labor and suffer reproach. And so I chose suffering as an interesting aspect of godliness because I think about 
Christ and what he said in his gospel. And he says that they hate me, so why else, why wouldn't they hate you as well? They hated me when I was on earth, and so that you know that they're going to hate you when you're here as well. You know that they're going to hate you. Um, so we can expect persecution. And as I thought about it, I thought about how when I lived in Ruston, how much persecution I actually went through. And at first glance, it seems almost kind of funny because we think about Ruston, we think about it being a bubble of just this big bubble of Christians and we're going to run into them everywhere and everybody loves God. But the fact is, is that, and I definitely experienced it, but not as much as I probably could have if I'd have been true to the, to the, true to the word, is that there are people here who don't. There's people here who don't love God, and as we know throughout the whole world and everywhere, if people don't love God, then they pretty much hate Him because the Scripture is very in your face. It's very hurtful. It, can be, it calls you to change. It says that you're evil and that you need change and you need a Savior, and that, kinda, that really hurts. And so we know that it can make people really upset. So we should be experiencing persecution, maybe in the, a slighter sense here, but we should still be experiencing it. Um, in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul goes a little more in depth to what persecution would look like or for a believer, especially for him. And it's verse 11 through 13 that I'm going to read. And it says, To this present hour we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made the filth of the world, the offscoring of all things until now. Okay, so verse 11, real quick, to the pre- it's where he says that we hunger and thirst and are homeless and poorly clothed. I want to, I'm not here to tell people that they're supposed to be homeless or go without food or go without clothing. A lot of things have changed um, since the time when uh, Paul was writing this. But if we think about specifically Paul and the apostles, especially Paul, as he in his former life was a, he murdered Christians for a living. Not for a living, but he did murder Christians. So the Lord, when he saved him, he told him that he would make, he would be an example, would be made out of Paul. So we know that Paul did experience all these things his whole life for the sake of the gospel. So we know that he was homeless, we know that he was beaten, and we know that he was hungry and thirsty. And the apostles were, because they did a lot of things when you were traveling, you didn't have the luxury that we have today when we travel to bring things really with you to carry. It would get very heavy walking. Um, and things like that. So they would, they were going from town to town, and when they were doing their ministry, they totally relied on when they got there that someone there would take them in and feed them and clothe them and give them a place to stay. And so that's why they went through what they went through. But on verse 12 through 13 is where I want to focus. Um, in this passage, Paul is, in 1 Corinthians, he's comparing and contrasting his actions with the church at Corinth. And the church at Corinth has really gotten very comfortable at this point. And so that's what he's attacking. He's attacking their comfortableness um, and, or their comfort. He's attacking their comfort and really com- showing them what a true servant or a bondservant of Christ would look like. So in verse 12, he says, We labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. And we have become... The- the filth of the world, the all-scoring of all things till now. So we see each time how they react. He says, being reviled, they bless. Being persecuted, they endure. And being defamed, they entreat or treat highly. Um, So he says, these are things that they're experiencing. And he's also saying that these are things that you as the church of Corinth should be expecting today. And so as we know that he wrote to the church of Corinth, that it also can be addressed to us today as well, that we should be experiencing these same things. Um, 
even in Ruston, I thought about it um, really hard because it is a special place that we live, or that I used to live here, don't live here anymore, but that we live in here in Ruston, um, and that it feels like a bubble, it feels like this special place. But the fact is, is that there still are non-believers here. And there still are people here who flat out hate God and probably hate you because of it. Um, and I thought about it, how we shouldn't go around looking to make people upset so that we would be persecuted. But that if everyone here knew who we were and knew who we lived for and in every aspect of our entire life, from what we did going to the grocery store to what we did at work, if everyone saw every action and we lived every moment of our life for Christ and everything, then we would be persecuted. Maybe in a slighter sense, they're probably not going to hang you up on a cross and murder you. But they would persecute you. They would maybe speak under their breath about you, be angry towards you. If you're talking to people that you know aren't believers and you're expressing the truth of the gospel to them and you're presenting it to them they, and they don't accept it, then they're probably going to be upset with you. Um, this kind of thing should be happening even here to us. Um, and so <clears throat> that was my, that's my third um, example of godliness is that if we are living our entire life for Christ in every aspect of it, then we should be persecuted as well. And so that's why I added it. It's an interesting aspect for godliness. You know, you think about things that would attribute to God, but um, if we think about Christ in his life, he was persecuted and he was rejected. And so as well, we should. And so um, I said, if we are not persecuted in the slightest bit for standing up for a gospel that enrages people worldwide, then we aren't living a life sold out to Christ. Um, so, I guess to close, those are my three aspects of godliness. Um, importance of the scripture and doctrine and what it means to us, how it embodies, um, teaches us as Christians to live. Self-limitation, as we care for the first one is about yourself, building yourself up to know more about Christ. The second one is about those around you, so caring for the people around you, making sure that they're not falling entrapped to the devil or to his lies, but to carry them alongside you. And the last one is to labor and suffer um, as Jesus labored and suffered as we persecuted. Um, I remember Paul said that we're persecuted, but it doesn't compare to the eternal riches and glory that we will inherit one day. Um, so I'm going to pray and then just forgot your name. I just forgot your name. Jason is going to be at the front. I know Jason. I don't know why I forgot it. But Jason is going to be at the front um, if, I don't know, maybe you want to make a decision to follow Christ today. Or maybe you are convicted because these aren't things that, the Lord, that you're living out in your life and you want to come and pray with him. Um, Lord, I thank you for you, God, Lord, that you sent your son, um, Lord, and what he did for us on the cross and in this life and how he lived a perfect example of how we were to be godly. Lord, that he loved and was there for everyone around him, how he was loving to those who hated him. God, Lord, that he went through persecution and Lord, that he limited himself. God, I pray that tonight as I spoke and as taught on your word, Lord, that it would resonate with the people here. God, Lord, that you would Bring us to an understanding of the things that you've called us to do as Christians. Um, God, Lord, that we would be humbled and convicted, ultimately, Lord, to grow in you. 
Uh, God, Lord, that I know we're not doing everything correctly, but Father, Lord, that you would stress the importance on us to study your word and to be in your scripture um, and to learn about you. Father, Lord, that you would teach us where we need to limit ourselves for the sakes of others. And God, Lord, finally, that you would, we would embrace persecution as we know that it is a sign that we must be doing something right for you as you were persecuted as well. And we must be standing up for you. Lord, I pray that you would just grow us, God, Lord, as you have spoken to us tonight, that you would teach us and that we would grow in you and that we would just be greater witnesses for your name in the world. Pray all the things, Jesus. Name.